I'm not exactly sure what all we're going to talk about, but um, this is all Tom's idea, so. Oh, it is? <laughs> you you uh, messaged me about it, yeah. Are we? So oh, okay. I've made, yeah. but it's it's some some somewhat my fault because I've made so many promises over the last couple of weeks as far as podcasts is concerned, and I haven't like really done anything. I've started editing the uh, Patricia Cornwell show again, and I don't. I'm gonna have to probably take a lot of that out, Paul. But there are certain probably parts for the best. That, yeah, um, there are certain parts that I'll that I'll retain if I can get it done at all. We'll ju- we'll just have to see. How um, long ago did you record that episode? Uh, it was um, like a few a long time ago. A few months ago. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I think a book had just come out, hadn't it, or it was just yeah. about to come out, one or one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had just come out. It, it was a good show. It's just the audio quality; it's all messed up. So, but so, but as I was listening back on the Cornwell show over the last few days, Paul, we were talking about. He was explaining his relationship collaboration with Patricia Cornwell, and he um, just uh, alluded to you know that that he had collaborated with Paul Feldman and Shirley Harrison and other Ripper authors. So him working with um, a Ripper author you know, behind the scenes, like, you know, not, not like what he's doing with John Bennett, but more as, as a part of a researcher role, um, was, um, interesting to me. So, uh, so I thought maybe he could elaborate a little bit about that. And that, that would also kind of, um, Oh Dear Boss is kind of like a news and views type of a show sometimes. So, I figured that if Paul would, would uh, kind of go into his history and working with Feldman and Shirley Harrison and stuff like that, that could get us into touching on a little bit of the diary, which is in, has been in the news as Ripper news at least for the last for the la- last half of this year, given the anniversary. So, and then we can just go on from there. Tom, although he's tired, uh, he likes. No, to I'm talk. awake. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he likes to talk, so I'm kind of hoping that I won't. I, the stuff I have planned out won't necessarily have to happen. You know what I'm saying? I'll just, I'm I'm recording, and and you guys can just talk as far as I'm concerned, and and we'll just see how it all goes. Does that sound good? Well, I think that's a great idea. Sounds kind great. Of the burden on Paul, but you know, hey, that's that's great. I also have my copy of uh, you know Robert Smith's book at hand, so. And what did you think about it, Tom? I thought it was very concise and well-written. I mean, I like that he, he made it. I mean, the guy must have an awful lot to say, having been involved with this for 25 years. And the fact that he was able to condense all that and to, to such a, a concise book is very impressive to me. Um, you know, so, uh, and I, I liked his wit. Uh, the Of course, the buildup of the book, was about the provenance of, you know, it being Battle Creek's house, and I was and I was looking forward to that, and I was a bit disappointed with what it turned out to be. Um, mm. 
I, I'm not uh, because I thought there was a, like a smoking gun type thing that it was found in Battle Crease, and I the way it read to me was kind of the opposite of that. It does not. It doesn't seem to me like it was found in Battle Crease at all, and uh, which doesn't surprise me because I don't think it was an, a contemporary hoax. I think it was a modern hoax. But I was totally willing to change my mind and. And I've heard for years the murmur about electricians and this and that. And so when I read the what's supposedly the full story, it was very confusing. Um, and uh, no two of the electricians told the same story, and none of them said they actually found a diary. They had all their dates. And it sounded to me like a bunch of guys who were approached later and asked, did you find this historically relevant thing? And they all wanted to say they did without saying they did. And uh, to get themselves in the story is what it sounded like. So there was that. But, uh, you know, and then the, the rest of the book, um, you know, of course, Robert Smith was a little, like most theorists, he was a little heavy-handed at certain points and presenting something very in a very fair way, but then ending it with, well, you know, this pretty much proves Maybrick was the Ripper or something like that. Some power statement there at the end that was just kind of, eh, could have, could have done without that. But I guess I'm, you know, sort of used to, used to that now, but um, it was a good book. It was a good read. I liked the reproduction of the diary itself. Uh, very clean, uh, very well-made book, great, great photos and images and all of that. Um, I'm still not in remotely swayed um, from my opinion that it's a modern hoax. I, I have to admit I have not read it because I uh, I thought it was the guy from The Cure that wrote it. So right, yeah. Right. So, but uh, yeah, you weren't the target audience to try to sway on that though. He was trying to grab people that uh, you know have only read the headlines in the paper. I'm sure. No, but, I don't, I don't think he was particularly trying to sway anybody. He was just just made the the, the case. Uh, Quite, I, I was quite impressed and disappointed in the uh, in the Battle Creek House revelations. I was was impressed that Robert kind of dealt with it uh, w- without real bias, uh, and he, did, he he resisted the temptation to get into to to raising questions and and trying to answer them, such as. Uh, how they managed to get this thing to Mike Barrett, who apparently uh, was phoning Doreen Montgomery on the same day that it was discovered, which seems to be uh, too tight a turnaround for my tastes. But I thought Robert sort of didn't get involved in things, so he he did quite well in that respect, and I enjoyed that that bit. But it uh, it was just the the reproduction of the of the diary itself which uh, i thought was impressive yes i would agree definitely agree with that who else has read the book i haven't been able to read it yet but i've been following all of the message board um discussions on casebook and on jtr forums and i haven't seen a one of them so i don't know what what the consensus is well there is no consensus um because it's the diary, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, Paul can correct me if I'm wrong because I wasn't around back um, in the early days of the diary, but it, it is this 25 years later, 
the same arguments for or against, right? It doesn't seem to have resolved anything, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's pretty much uh, the same. It's it, it's the, the one thing that seems to strikes me uh, about then and now is that the most vociferous of either side are the the sort of non-believers, as it were. They're they're the ones who seem to be so determined to make the case that this isn't a genuine document or it's not an old forgery or or whatever. Um, having uh, worked with uh, with Shirley and Paul and everything, they were. I mean, Paul was quite loud, but then he was really doing battle with Melvin Harris back then. And I think that they were relatively quiet in what they what they were saying. Uh, the 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 loudest voices was were, were those that uh, were opposed to it. And that seems to be the case today. That's quite extraordinary. That's true. But that, that's an interesting observation because now that I think back, I you know the the Melvin Harris days. <laughs> um, yeah, he would say something, and then a band of people would come behind him um, and repeat, 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 and yell it. Um, and then you know, and then there'd be Paul Feldman over here, uh, kind of off to his lonesome and. Uh, but uh, I think that as far as the modern day, what I've noticed is different now versus 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, is I think the Battle Crease revelations, uh, and that's just what I'm calling them, um, might, I think have swayed people's opinion from modern hoax to contemporary hoax. I think I've seen on Facebook people talking, there's a lot more people who believe contemporary hoax now than it used to be. Yeah, and whereas at when I came in in the late '90s, I mean, there was it, it seemed to be two camps: either the diary was legit or it was a modern hoax. That was those were the two camps. That's exactly <laughs> it. The, the strange thing about the diary is that it dispolarized these two sides, which was hugely disappointing. And I, I was the one that was trying in the stuck in the middle, trying to say, well, look, what about this being uh, a contemporary hoax or or a hoax at any time uh, thereafter, really. And uh, people were not at all interested in in that as a possibility. Well, you know, I've over the years formed a couple of opinions. Um, on, I still think it's a hoax, but uh, and I think it's most likely a modern hoax. But there's still a part of me that goes, what if, um, what if it were a contemporary hoax? And... Uh, I have a theory as to who who could have done that. And, uh, you know, speaking early 20th century, when I say contemporary, I don't mean 1888. Um, but early 20th century, there's one group that um, spent a lot of time researching Florence Maybrick, who were also very interested in Jack the Ripper and were located in London. And it's a group. And that group is the Detection Club with, Anth- you know, Anthony Berkeley. Um, who had a particular interest in the Florence Maybrick case, the, the mystery writer, Ag- and his friends Agatha Christie, etc. And this sounds sensational because I'm bringing in famous names, but it's an actual fact that these guys um, collected research, published on these cases, and discussed them all the time. 
And um, who better than if, if if there were going to be a literary hoax of any sort, I don't know that there's a better group who could have pulled it off and would have had the wherewithal to not release it to the public but let it hide somewhere for a very long time. Who would have had access to Battle Creek's house? Um, and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Agatha Christie, of course, wrote, when she was a young woman, wrote the final Perot mystery and then handed it to her state and said, don't publish it until after my death. So, uh, you know, I think if it were a contemporary hoax, those are my, the ones I'd feel most likely have written it. I always thought that one thing about the diary that was uh, interesting was the uh, the way in which things like uh, the paper and the ink and and the even down to the type of pen used and everything else uh, were all difficult to do if you were faking. Not difficult, but not something that everybody would necessarily think about. And yet, if the thing was produced. Uh, back in time, then the person who was writing it was just using what came to hand for everyday use. And so he wouldn't necessarily have had to uh, make uh, any effort to forge it. And he didn't make any effort to disguise the handwriting. I just wondered if it was something that uh, a writer or a journalist had done with uh, having seen Leonard Matters produce his theory about Dr. Stanley, but nobody appears to have asked for any evidence of Dr. Stanley's existence back then. Um, and I thought some bloke might go into an editor's office, slap that book down on the, the desk and say, I want to do a, a feature about this diary. And then uh, nobody bothered to check it. Yeah, but what about, I mean, the, that would have been a very well-informed journalist who slap-dashed a diary together in an old photograph. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, I, I, it, it doesn't resolve every question. It was it was just a possibility that, yeah. that 25 years ago, absolutely nobody was giving any thought to whatsoever, because as you say, uh, it was either a modern hoax or it was genuine. It was either genuine or it was written by Mike Barrett, basically. Oh, uh, yeah. And have has everyone just pretty much dismissed the idea that that Mike Barrett was the forger at this point in time? It seems so, just by yeah. um, following the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it was too elaborate for Mike to have been the forger. Well, I... I how so? Did did you guys read uh, David or Sam's review of Robert Smith's book on his website? I didn't. No, no, I didn't. Did you look at it, Mark? No, I didn't. Okay, well, he goes what, through what website? Uh, he has his own website. Just awesome books, isn't it? <laughs> Talking about David Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh yeah. Yeah, okay, so maybe that's it. Anyway, he uh he brings up all these different to back, back to Brian's point about uh Mike Barrett un being unable to what I don't know, have the mental capacity to write the book or something like that to forge the diary. He goes through and um lists all these different articles like um Barrett was a journalist, you know, so it's not like he didn't have any experience writing. 
And, and so he tries to kind of build the case that, you know, uh, against this idea that, that Barrett didn't possess the talents to maybe, uh, have, had been the forger. Um, well, according to Robert Smith's book, Barrett was not a journalist. He just constructed crossword puzzles or something like that, um, for an, a paper. Right. Which, which turns out not to, not to be the case. Oh, interesting. Where, uh, because I believe um, David uh, brings up um, quite a few articles that Barrett had actually written. Um, but that's kind of beside the point, because no one's really arguing that he was the forgery. That was kind of where I was getting at. It's interesting that here's the guy who confessed to forging the diary that were, that is just being completely dismissed. But uh, another He's a th- journalist. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, um, but what Tom was also saying about how just within the last 10 or so years, you get uh, the uh, camps kind of shifting from the Maybrick did it or it's a modern for- forgery to it being now either a contemporary forgery or a modern forgery. And um, the use of the Internet and being able to use Google Books to Google, like, to track down the first time the phrase one off for instance was used in 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 a context outside of a, a manufacturing you know what i'm saying express an expression having to do with like just strictly on a manufacturing level but a one-off product mm. um, is being looked at as further evidence that well if it's a contemporary hoax. Then the hoaxer, if if it was if it was hoaxed before World War II, let's say, then that hoaxer was the first person ever to use the expression "one off" in a manner not specifically relating to the production of goods in a factory, for instance, right? So, although the Maybrick, uh, the, the, the people who are arguing that Maybrick is a modern forgery might be the loudest, they also kind of have the most evidence on their side at this point in time because of, uh, the content of the diary that points it to it being more modern and, and the, the expressions used by the author. I well, I personally agree because I do believe it is a modern forgery, and you know, really, it's the the whole, uh, you know, the diarist suggesting that Mer- that initials were written on the wall of Mary Kelly's room, Florence Maybrick, FM, being such an '80s thing. It had not been observed prior to the '80s because, first of all, that photo of Mary Kelly had to get published in a book. And in such a manner to where it looked like FM were written on a wall for anyone to even make that observation in the first place. And that had not happened prior to the early 80s. So um, I just don't see it's It's difficult for me to comprehend that this that was written, you know, uh, 80 years prior to that. It just it's hard to comprehend that. The problem that I've always had with uh, with these things is that it, it's a little difficult. When you've met the people who are involved and uh, you've seen them in different situations and so forth, you think to yourself, well, you, you form opinions and it's sometimes a bit difficult to shift those opinions. Other people who 
didn't meet them and are just working off the basis of the sources of, of, of what's available, they can form a different idea. Um, right. The the thing that sticks in my mind most is that when Mike's marriage broke up, he used to phone me a lot uh, at night time when he was uh, a little worse for wear, and you'd be hearing the clink of the uh, the glass in the background, which Mike was saying was Lucasade, uh, but he was really just knocking back the the, the whiskey. And the thing uh, was was that. Mike, at that stage, blamed Paul Feldman for, for the breakup of his marriage. And Mike was going through a whole... We would have a conversation for about an hour and a half, and he would go through a whole gamut of, of emotions. Uh, <clears throat> and he would promise that he was going to destroy Paul Feldman by exposing the diary, but he never, ever, ever gave any indication of how this was going to happen. And I'm personally convinced that if he had got any way of, of hurting Feldman at that time, uh, he would have, would have done it without hesitation if he could have gone in somewhere and produced papers and documents or whatever to prove that he had written that diary. I think he would have done so. And if he'd known who, unless there was some great reason why he wouldn't reveal uh people who were working with him in the well yeah he didn't do it alone i think there was if 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 barrett was even involved in the production of the diary and i'm not convinced he had any involvement in the production i mean he may have literally been handed that by someone but or there was a silent third party behind him who um you know i don't know if it's too late to follow the money but uh, that would tell us who it might be I think there was an effort was made at the time to follow the money, and it it wasn't going anywhere. The Mister Big, the forger, as we referred to him, uh, there just didn't seem to be one. Well, or he, you know, the money wasn't there when the film deals and all that fell through, and he backed away because he didn't want to get in trouble with the law. Because you know, forgers hope that their stuff will just be accepted at face value, and sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. In this case, it was not. And uh, it was questioned very publicly, and in the wake of the Hitler diaries, you know, this person could be in some some measure of trouble once there was money exchanging hands, um, mm -hmm. and they were guilty of fraud. So they might have backed away from it, but by exposing that person, um, Barrett might have realized, yeah, I'm hurting Feldman, but I'm really hurting this person who has not done me wrong. And That's, so I can do that. One possibility, or that, or he was fearful that that person might hurt him, or, or yeah, he was protecting himself. But there, there's that, yeah. But I, I just don't get that feeling. I, I think that uh, I think that Mike Barrett, when he was in his cups, especially, just didn't care. He, if he could have got back at, at Feldman, he would have done so. Um, the the other curious thing about the diary is if you think about it is as you've just said is that the forger hopes that his creation won't be questioned at all and that the uh, diary was but if you think about uh, Melvin Fairclough and uh, his book with uh, with Sickert where he produced the Abilene diaries and so oh boy yeah 
Uh, <coughs> nobody appears to have asked to see those particularly or to uh, have them tested, rather. Uh, <coughs> Melvin got a book out of that deal with, with, just on the basis of being able to uh, say that the, the, the Abilene Diaries existed and to produce that little thing that, that's reproduced in the, in the book itself. But there was no testing done, no scientific work done, no experts brought in, nothing. So there's no, absolutely no reason why I would guess the forger would have anticipated that, a, the, that the Maybrick Diary would do anything more than have a book based on it. Uh, and yet that's, as we know, is not what happened. But if he didn't expect it to be tested and for all this stuff to happen, why go to the effort of making sure that you got an old ink, that, you know, that all the other stuff was, was right? Uh, you only do that if you think it's going to get tested. Well, the Sickert Aberlane forgery was a particularly bad one. Oh, it was. Um, you know, so I don't know the, the two way together because uh, the, if the Ripper Diary were a modern hoax, then it was a particularly good one. <clears throat> and by someone who wanted to do a good job. It's kind of like, you know, you have Ripper books that are crap and you have Ripper books that are really, really good. Um, and it doesn't make, you know, but people still think it's okay to put out crap, you know, so it's, uh, yeah. You know, I, I, and Fairclaw, incidentally, immediately became a, a pro diarist, like right away, uh, disavowed his original book and then continues to publish new editions of, of Ripper and the Royals. Well, that, and, and really, really good forgers take pride in their work. Right. And they will get every detail right. The great art forgers, the great historical document forgers, I mean, they get it dead on perfect. Um, it's, you know, it's pride in their work. They're artists in a way. Yeah, and, if, you know, the, the, of course, with the Ripper Diary, you know, I mean, I think the thing that bugs a lot of people is the fact that it's it's written... In an old Victorian scrapbook with pages torn out, which is exactly what a modern forgery would, would be expected to be, um, versus in an actual diary or something that people would write. It'd be kind of like today, um, like us grabbing a photo album down, tearing some pages out, and writing our thoughts. And it just doesn't even make sense then. It doesn't make sense now. It does, in a sense, actually, if you, because uh, it's a memento <coughs> book, really, with. Um, the dividers between the pages so that you can put things in it that they like, like uh, cards and, uh, and other things that you might have that uh, you want to preserve, and, you, and the book would still lie flat. So if you've got a book which is full of photographs of your wife and theatre tickets and theatre programmes and all the stuff that you might have that uh, reflects the, the early part of your marriage and, and, and happy times and your wife's then having affairs and the marriage is breaking down and you're sitting looking through this thing and you start, what, what would you write in? I mean, that's the first thing that comes to hand. And I think it's Robert Anderson has pointed out that the author does actually say that he's, uh, there is some line to the effect that he's destroyed some of his work and that he tried to do it but he but it wasn't a success and so 
perhaps that is a passing reference to the, the, the tearing out or the, the cutting out of those earlier pages. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that somebody would have started to write their thoughts down uh, and act as a bit of a confessional in the remaining pages of the Memento book and then tear those starting pages out at some point later on when they want to destroy it, but then fail. And so the thing survives. And that confessional would be so brief and pertain only to, like, you know, the Ripper murders? Uh. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just, just saying that it's not beyond the realms of possibility that... No, nothing's beyond... No, of course it's not. Person, you know. And it's quite... Re well, let me make it even better. I mean, it's, it's quite reasonable that somebody might have done that. It's, um, it's one of those... Every... The thing about the diary is that every time somebody says one thing, somebody else counters it with, a, with, with another argument and... It just absolutely, the, the, the arguments go round and round in circles and you never get anywhere with it because there can be no general agreement on things as it stands at the moment. Yeah, I guess in my case, the way I look at it is if it were a modern, either a contemporary hoax or the real deal, then I wouldn't expect to find things in there that only make sense in the 1980s. Um, and because there's more than one item in there that just scream 80s, uh, you know, it, it, to me it just has to be a modern hoax. Otherwise those wouldn't be present. It's kind of like the flip side of the Swanson marginalia, why I um, believe all of that, uh, you know, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons why I believe it legit. But one of them being, if it were a modern hoax, um, we would expect to see... Um, you know, like another name in there. Uh, not any anyone but Kosminski. It would have been whoever the hot suspect of the time was. Um, it would have been Leather Apron. It would have been someone like that from whenever it was written. But because well, it's not, uh, you know. There's, no, there's, there's actually no reason ever to suppose that the Swanson Marginalia is anything other than genuine. Oh, I know. I, I'm with you there. Um, so, I've, I've never believed it was fake at any point. Um, I've followed the arguments. I'm intrigued by that kind of discussion. Uh, and, and I don't mean all the message board. That, that goes on way too long, but I've read the articles and this and that. And, uh, but the, the strong, I mean, it's just, just forget all the science and the handwriting analysis and all that. If you look at just content, the marginality just has to be real. Um, if you look at the, uh, the diary, in my opinion, it has to be a modern hoax because there's just those items with the FM on the wall and the tin matchbox empty are just so 80s. Just so, so 80s. It's, it's glaring, but, uh, it, it still, it still seems to survive. That's the, Bizarre well, people thing. want to believe, you know. People want the case solved, and I get that. I totally get that. In the when I was early on, and in, in my when I read Feldman's book, it's like I read the diary. And I was like, man, this is pretty convincing. Then I was convinced it was fake. Then I read Feldman's book, the final chapter, and I was like, man, this is some heavy stuff. Uh, maybe this thing is real. And then of course other people, like, well, blah blah blah. Here's why it's not. And so then I, I was just like, I'm going to put all the nonsense aside, and I'm just going to read the diary itself, the, those little those brief pages, and uh, and I was like, yeah, you know, this has got to be a modern hoax. 
forget all the science, because science and ripperology don't mix. It's oil and water. Um, science and ripperology just, I mean, it's, you, you, if there's science, it's, it's just crap science, it just seems to be. There's just no real science. It's very unhelpful is what I'm saying. Mm. Like with the, the shawl business, the this and the, that horrendous American ripper thing with that dude comparing a picture that's absolutely not Liz Stride to another picture who's not even doesn't even resemble that woman, and then concluding they're the same person, <laughs> and just on down the line. Science and ripperology do not mix. That yeah, was, it's interesting you bring up the shawl. <laughs> I, I was I was going to point out that if it, if it is a hoax, which I believe it's a modern hoax as well. It certainly stood the test of time, and it grabbed the imagination more show than than any of the other modern hoaxes we've seen, like the shawl, which, you know, with the compelling DNA evidence was going to solve everything. And that went away in just a matter of months. This is 25 years on. It, You know, you got to give me credit. It's a job well done if it was a hoax. Oh, sure. I, absolutely. You know, I don't know that uh, I would categorize the shawl as a hoax. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily. Um, since it was a f- uh, family heirloom, you know, that had been passed down with pro- with most likely an incorrect origin story. Uh, but- I totally agree with what Jonathan just said. Yeah, I don't think anyone connected with the the shawl, um, the family were, were hoaxing it. In no, 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 the family weren't hoaxing it. Yeah. And I didn't mean to imply that, but what I meant was the... Uh, uh, you know, they're trying to sell the book with the DNA evidence proving Kosminski's on the uh, on wow. the show. And yeah, that was, some that was the hoax. That was some bad stuff. But, um, yeah, and even then it's still very different because with the diary, if it's a hoax, you've got someone, you know, uh, secreted away in a room, spending a lot of time and effort con- concocting this. And, you know, and then uh, setting back and reaping no rewards and probably very nervous they'll be caught out um, and, and possibly still on the scene today. Um, certainly, I think whoever hoaxed the diary, their name would be known to Paul Begg at least. Someone like who was, who was around then, who was very high profile, this person would have spoken to Paul Begg to find out what he knew or what he thought. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh, maybe um, it was me who did it. That's been no, it wasn't you who did it. But the, the, this person would have reached out to certain individuals, and as as a fan of their book or as a curious ripperologist, like any of the rest of us, and and talk to him about. It. There's just no way around that. That would have absolutely happened. Mark Ripper, what what's your take on the diary? I mean, I thought I think Paul's right. I think the, the difficulty with the diary is that the the arguments go round and round in circles, and um, and it feels it feels slightly I I think it feels slightly uncomfortable that the whole thing can't be disposed of in one go, and it it feels it's the kind of document where that ought to be possible, and, and for whatever reason it isn't possible. I, I think if you look at I agree with what what Tom said as well about Paul Feldman's book, which made a very uh, compelling and persuasive case for the validity of the diary and uh, I remember reading that all in one go in a pub in uh, one evening in, in Streatham in South West London and um, finding it really persuasive and uh, Feldman makes a much better case for the diary than the diary does um, the diary itself I think if you look at the text of the diary it's really it's really dreadful I, I think the, the grammar is 
terrible, the syntax is terrible. There, there's so many things about it which make you think this is just... No one could have expected that to pass as a genuine document without question in the state it's in. And yet, after 25 years, we haven't completely disposed of it. And initial uh, the inquiries or investigations made by Shirley uh, didn't appear to arouse any suspicions amongst British Library or Jarndyce, the booksellers, or mm. anything like that, which is surely took on the, the, the challenge and pursued it, really. Uh, it, it is it kind of anticipated that it would be immediately dismissed as a, as a modern forgery, and yet it went completely the other way. Because I remember getting uh, the diary and uh, had to take my daughter off to, to do something, and I was, while she was off doing whatever it was she was doing, I was sitting looking at this and that, took this out of a manila envelope that it arrived in and I, I somewhere I've still got my notes that I made uh, on the back of that envelope the first day uh, and I was saying this is obviously not real and stuff like that load of rubbish and, and what have you and it's still still not proven it's quite bizarre how did you first get involved in the whole diary story, Paul? Um, it was because Robert Smith was involved um, in when the when the, the, the Shirley's book was put up for auction. Uh, Robert was one of the people who uh, made a bid and and got it for his publishing company. And Robert had published. Keith and Martin Howell's book, The Ripper Legacy, uh, when he was uh, uh, publishing director at Sidgwick and Jackson. And so Robert asked Keith to have a look at it, and Keith asked Martin and myself to have a look at it. And so that's, that's how I got, got involved. Uh, and then we were helping Shirley uh, to to look at it and, and going through it to see if there was anything in it that was manifestly wrong with regard to the to the Ripper murders. Uh, and then Feldman came along and uh, I gave a lot of help to, to Feldy because Feldy, um, I found out coming back from Liverpool where we'd been to see Mike and Ann Barrett, uh, Feldman actually uh, genuinely believed there was something in the diary which he connected with, and he believed that only somebody who'd had that experience would have, uh, which he'd had also, which would, would be able to write about it so convincingly. And so he was totally convinced that it was genuine. And one of the troubles that you have in that respect is that if you think something is genuine, then uh, you believe that, of course, that there has to be an answer to every objection. Uh, and that's a dangerous situation to get into because you're always, uh, you're not believing stuff. There. If the diary says something that's wrong, then there has to be an answer to that somewhere. So you've just got to look harder for it. And that led Feldman 
uh, astray a bit, but uh, that's that's my involvement with uh, with Feldy and Shirley and so forth. So all of the members of the original, what what's being referred to as the diary team, I don't know if that's the apt description of, of all of you back then, um, you all had differing opinions on on uh, about no, I, its authenticity, or I think we were all pretty much of the same opinion. Um, Keith and I tend to be very, very similar in our in our way of thinking, in as much as what drove us was wanting to know. As twenty five years later is probably what everybody wants to know. We wanted to know where did the the diary come from. Who conceived the idea? Who executed it? How did Mike Barrett get involved? We were so, we, we were more interested in in getting to the fact, uh, which I think uh, Keith revealed a lot later when he did uh, did the book with with Kaz uh, Morris and uh, oh somebody who unforgivably I can't remember the name of, but. Seth Linda, that's right. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, Keith, that that's how Keith and I were. So we weren't terribly bothered about uh, about those other issues. Martin believed right from the outset that it was a, a fake and wouldn't budge on that under any circumstances. Um, Melvin Fairclough came in a lot later, working with um, with Feldy. And I think he was fairly open-minded about it, also. So, and, and Shirley was uh, was obviously pro diary being genuine, but I don't think she was ever one hundred percent convinced. She just she just leant more towards it, it being being genuine. Uh, and Feldy was convinced that it was genuine. And I think Roberts probably more convinced that it's genuine than anything else as well. Oh, that's, that's obvious from the book. Well, yeah. that's the thing. The, the diary, in a large part, keeps going because people, non-ripperologists, I guess you could say, uh, Shirley Harrison, Paul Feldman, Robert Smith, came into ripperology via the diary and became strict adherents. And therefore, I mean, I think that's a big part in, in what's, what's kept it out there because who have been putting out all the pro-diary books? You know, Shirley Harrison, Paul Feldman, and now Robert Smith. And that, that just keeps it coming back to life. And every time a book comes out, because people tend to read, believe what they read in books, and the Ripper books, a lot of them are particularly good. Um, and, uh, you know, they you know they convince uh, a lot of people new to the case, and that, that gets a new generation going. And, and I think that's a large part of why the diary, we talk about why this Mark mentioned, he's like, I don't know how this thing wasn't just done away with in one go. And I think that... Um, that's a big part of the reason is is influential people believe in it. And Bruce yeah, Robinson, uh, Bruce Robinson, kind of helped kickstart this um, yeah. latest round of interest in the diary. Did he? Because I don't know that did he? I don't know that he did. Did he? Because it uh, his he's, book's so weird. He's convinced a, a, a few people. That Michael Maybrick is the Ripper, but he didn't even talk about. I mean, I couldn't get all the way through his book, but <laughs> I might try again one of these days. But uh, you know, he didn't talk too much. He didn't get into here's why you need to believe the diary is real. He just felt that that didn't need to be discussed. That's not important. 
um, just believe my theory that Michael Maybrick, backed by the entire police force of London, was the Ripper. So, because he was, you know, of course, a Freemason. Strange, strange theory. Yes, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't don't think Bruce really uh, played a part in this, other than, of course, that uh, I think it was he was the one that financed the research that led to the discovery of the uh, the electricians' uh, Correct, work, yeah. worksheets and things. But he didn't, uh, to the best of my memory, uh, he didn't allude to that in his book at all. So I'm not sure that he sort of, sort of revitalized the, the diary as such. He revitalized Maybrick, maybe, by bringing in uh, Michael. But uh, I don't know anybody who actually claims to have gotten through the entire book except for me. <laughs> Mark Ripper, what about you? You, know, you can read long books in a single setting. Did you did you get through Bruce Robinson? No, I could I could I could once. I couldn't I can't do it now. I, I rely on Paul Beck to read books so that I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I, was say, I, I tried that one too, couldn't get about halfway through it. But since you did finish it, Paul, how does it end? <laughs> uh, well you just said it ends with Michael Maybrick being the uh, uh, other than that, it's kind of blocked out of my memory these days. I, <laughs> I hated the book, I, so so therefore I I I didn't uh, I didn't like the way that uh, the police were misrepresented. You you, there's no reason to think that uh, Swanson was a liar. Certainly, no reason to suggest that uh, that he fished for lies in a bottle of ink. It, 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 this sort of stuff was just without. Factual foundation. There was no. There's no, and nothing was offered to support those claims either. Uh, and I, I, that that's the nature of the text he wrote. I mean, he wrote a polemic. What yeah. he wanted to write a polemic. He did not want. Well, it doesn't necessarily matter whether the polemic takes as its kind of uh, as its. Uh, kind of rationale for being a book, the subject of Jack the Ripper or the subject of butterfly collecting. You could write a polemic against the establishment either way. Correct. Absolutely. But it, that's it's exactly never, right. But, but that's what offended me. Well, he, he, he didn't care. I mean, the book was, to me, it was the reason it was 800 and some pages long is 400 pages were about Bruce and uh, about himself and his biases, his opinions, um, and that's that. It kept taking out of the whenever he was writing. He just it was like he wanted. He had all these funny insults he wanted to use, um, and he needed a vehicle to use them. And so he picked. He just he just made fun of everyone alive and dead through the course of that book, and at the end presented what he has to know. And I think I don't think he believes his own theory. I think he knows it's just a ridiculous theory. And the book was a middle finger at Ripperology, um, saying, look, my theory is the dumbest, but watch, people will believe it, kind of a thing. Mm. And I, I, he's not the first, he probably thinks he's the first to do that, and of course he's not, you know. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I haven't, like, you know, I have not read this book all the way through, I've, I've kind of glanced at parts of it, but um, I don't think he necessarily wants to uh, ridicule Ripperology as being, uh, you know, uh, or Ripperologists as being overly uh, credulous people. 
I don't think he has any particular interest in Ripperology full stop. I think I think the the, the problem is the fact is that Jack Ripper is is so uh, kind of easily available and popularly available to tag uh, tag other uh, other agenda issues onto or or to 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 serve as, as an excuse for for writing something in, in the end it's got nothing to do with Jack the Ripper. It's it's just a, a means to an end. I'm not sure that he has any particular derogatory opinion towards or had any derogatory intention towards ripperology in writing the book. I, I, I think that ripperology is just something he gets stuck with as a kind of as a platform for writing, as you say, the, ins, the insults he wants to make, his, his grievances against the establishment, all of those sorts of things. Well, and he picks on Paul Begg and other people. Oh, no, no. Uh, yeah. and, he, and, and he, I mean, I, think, I, do, I do think he's <laughs> has a very low opinion of ripperologist, or he wouldn't say the things he does in the book. But I think, I think, I think it's actually quite if, nice if, to me. <laughs> if Paul Begg had been a butterfly collector instead of a ripperologist, and if Bruce Robinson <laughs> had chosen to write about butterfly collecting instead of Jack the Ripper, he would have probably said all the same things about Paul Begg anyway. That's probably, probably true. Yeah, probably true. But, uh, yeah, it, what surprises me about Robinson is that he did spend a lot of time on research. You, you, you know, and just given his objective... And the tone of his book, and he must have been a very unhappy fellow writing that book. Yes, I mean, it's it's sort of controversial opinion I probably shouldn't utter on the podcast, but, uh, you know, 2016, 2017, it's kind of been a bumper year for Ripperology. More money has been spent on research than in any other year between... Robinson and Cornwall, and uh, but I'm not sure whether the returns have justified the outlay. I would agree. Right. Well, with, with Cornwall, you know, like the, when her first book came out 10, 15 years ago, and she was like, oh, I spent all this money on the letters. <clears throat> I don't trust what she published about them. Um, because we haven't, you know, maybe Paul's seen all the, now he's seen all the research, the papers written by, but we didn't see that in the book, and I, and I'm not sure that the, the, it was represented correctly in some cases. But uh, so I think it was a, you know, essentially a waste of money. But the problem with ripperology is when a lot of money is spent, it's always spent by someone with an agenda, and so that information achieved, you know, or retrieved by the researchers is filtered through that agenda and given to us. And, and we're getting a part of what, you know, that's, that's the thing about Robinson that upset me is I knew he had spent a lot of money. There had been a lot of research undertaken. And, but we're only going to see the research that suits his weird-ass theory and, and not the stuff that might actually be of any value to us. Um, and same with Cornwell and, and some others, which, which, you know, but that's why we need more real ripperologists making a ton of money or something so that uh, we can get all that research and put it somewhere where it can be of use. I would like to know what sort of research it is that we would be buying with with, with the uh, you know the the, the five hundred million pounds that we've suddenly got off the lottery. Um, you know, how how are, we, how are we going to what 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 are we going to specifically invest that in? Um, it's one of the problems is is that the people who have got that kind of money to it well not not that kind of money but <laughs> who have got a sufficient amount to invest into this sort of research 
um, they tend to reinvest it into areas of research that interest them. Correct. Uh, so, you know, I I find it quite interesting. I think Patricia, uh, for example, did uh, invested uh, money in in undertaking research to pursue her beliefs, but at the same time, uh, she brought to light quite a bit of information that uh, tends to get, is in her book, uh, but perhaps doesn't uh, have the emphasis that I would have given if, if, if I'd been writing the book. Well, and, and same with Robinson. I'm never quite sure what we would be looking at if we had that money to invest. Well, same with Robinson. Good stuff gets found. I think my problem is like with, uh, I've been frustrated for years with the whole Battle Crease revelation because Keith Skinner had hinted at this like back in 07, I think, or a long time ago. And we were all excited to hear what he was going to talk about. It was imminent. We sat on it for 10 years. And, you know, and words are, you know, people are espousing rumors back and forth. And But we had to wait a decade to read what it was all about. Well, that, and, that, that was indeed a, a, a problem. But, of course, as far, Keith probably shouldn't have opened his mouth in the first place. And, uh, and it was, uh, I was sitting within about two feet of him when he, when he made the comment. Uh, and I think it was just a casual, well, it was just a casual throwaway observation it wasn't something that he made a big issue out of i would be of the opinion that probably a lot of people in the room didn't even uh give much attention to what what he'd said but of course i think it was ripperologist that published it wasn't it <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh I, I i can't remember actually i i know that keith I mean, it was said at that uh, the, the the trial uh, thing right. was held held in Liverpool, um, and it was just a, a we were all packing up when he when he made this this comment, uh, but it wasn't the information wasn't his to elaborate on it. No, it, it was Robinson's because yeah. Bruce had paid for that particular piece of research, and so um, I think Bruce was keeping it for his book. The, the gestation time of which was similar to an elephant. So that, that was a long time in, in coming. Um, and so it's only with the publication of Bruce's book and the fact that uh, he is happy for, for the information and he didn't use it and for the information to be made available that we now know about it. I don't think Keith really at the time gave really very much of a thought to it no probably not but you know and I've, I've stuck my foot in my mouth many times i'm not holding it against keith it just made me wonder <laughs> made me wonder for those people uh you know who who pay for research um and then they use what they use is is a researcher like Keith skinner then um obliged to set on the rest of the stuff forever because it was pay, bought and paid for but by say a bruce robinson but say he turns up research that we would get a lot of value of, but Bruce Robinson gets no value of it, and so Bruce doesn't use it, what happens to that information? Uh, it 
sits and dies with the with, with the individual. But then what if I hire Keith Skinner to do research for me that inevitably would send him perhaps down the same path? Does he then hand that research over to me too, or what? Well, I mean, there, how does yeah. that work? <laughs> Therein lies, therein lies the problem of being a, uh, a researcher, a professional researcher for other people. Yeah. Um, I really, I've never been in that situation, uh, and so therefore I can't answer it. Um, you know, for the most part, the people that I've worked for, uh, I have always I wouldn't work for them if I didn't believe that they were genuine, sincere and honest people um, that really is my priority and uh, I've been <laughs> fortunate in that I think Shirley Feldman, Patricia they're all very honest people and I think that they you know they, they've been uh, very good with the information that they've they've unearthed. Now, I've never worked with Bruce. I would assume that uh, he would be more than happy to to let his research material uh, be made public um, if asked. I I don't know. I don't because I I I don't know him terribly well. But I don't Paul, see any. Do you recall saying twenty eight thirty years ago something like that that. If given like a million pounds, um, you and Martin and Keith could solve the the Ripper mystery. Yes, that's sort of more a remark that was Martin's actually. Uh, but yes, uh, I, 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 uh, there was a uh, a belief back then that uh, there was information out there that that would uh, we could find and that that uh, given the resources. And to some extent, um, that that remark partly has been true. I mean, things like the Swanson marginalia weren't known about at that time um, as as well as it is now. But that that was a, an indicator, perhaps, that uh, that this mystery could be solved. Correct. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I thought it was in relation to. Is because there were the new new findings at the time and. And you had this feeling you were just on the cusp of something confirmatory of, of these other, you know, you had this name Kosminski. If you could just follow that through to the end, which could be any day now, um, you just had to get into certain archives and things like that. Well, we were but, finding there was a lot of stuff at the time that, um, you know, we didn't know. Uh, when I started, we we had very little information about Drew it really just what um, uh, what Dan Farson and, and Tom Cullen had dug up. Uh, nobody knew anything about Kosminski, and nobody knew anything about Ostrog. So right. we found um, we found out about them um, in one way or another. And so this that the area was opening up, and you also have to bear in mind that back then, I suppose. Uh, it wasn't until Keith, Martin, myself uh, um, came along and joined forces with, with the likes of uh, of Don Rumblow um, that 
the, the ripple study of the ripple was elevated from something more than pin the tail on the donkey, as Martin put it, um, right. which which was constantly it was it was basically a hobby. You came across somebody who you thought could have done the murders, and then uh, built a case against them, and and all the books and the people. It was just arguing. Somebody would put forward a theory, and somebody else would put forward a theory, and uh, outsiders thought that Ripper people were at each other's jugular. In fact, they were all quite pally and friendly, but they they had different theories and different arguments. But if you look at even somebody like Don's book, one-fifth of that book was devoted to the crimes. The bulk of the book is about the theories and and the, the offshoots and the movies and things like that. So there wasn't a great deal of attention being paid to the crimes. The only newspaper that most people had access to was the was the Times. Uh, so when we started looking at at other newspaper reports and uh, getting a bigger picture of what was going on, and and then of course getting access to the the files all of that was new stuff uh and and so there there was an element there of thinking well we are going down paths that haven't been very well trodden and that uh, who knows what what we can uncover as it turned out it wasn't an awful lot but it still changed the face of ripper studies and then people like Stuart Sugden came along and changed it even further. We, we had the, if we'd got the money, we thought we could probably resolve things. So, yes. Well, one of the things I talk about in um, Ripper Confidential in the Goulston Street Graffito section, where I'm actually talking quite a bit about your 1988 book, The, fa- the, the Uncensored Facts, mm. and mm. Uh, Fido's 87 book, The Crimes Detection Death. These days, those are often held as like similar books. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're unbiased resource books. And, and I don't see that. Um, uh, Fido's book is very much a suspect book. It's very much a theorist book. And the research is awesome and it was groundbreaking. But to me, it's very different from the uncensored facts. And, and I present that in the way you two treat the graffito where um, Fido, because he has a suspect who he believes couldn't have written that chalk writing, goes out of his way to argue that the graffito couldn't be legit, has to be a hoax, um, to the point where he's promoting Walter Dew as, like, you know, um, a great source, a great reference piece for that. Um, Whereas you, you're much more even-handed in your handling of the graffito because to you, it was like your focus on the uncensored facts was really just to present the facts um, with with not as much of yourself and you know pushed into the material um, mm-hmm. but uh, but those have had a great influence on the thinking of the field um, and and I think in fact Fido more so than anyone is responsible for the tides turning in, in popular ripperological opinion of the you know there's like a 50 50 divide. Was the graffito written by Ripper? Was it not? The fifty percent that thinks it was not, I think that's largely a direct result of um, Fido, and to a lesser extent, maybe yourself at the time, uh, and then later Stewart. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I mean, it's difficult. Uh, um, Martin, I think, started out with the view that uh, that Anderson had been badly badly treated in the uh, in the, by by time, uh, and and thought that he had needed to be taken a little bit more seriously, and because he was the one who was saying, well, we knew who Jack the Ripper was. Uh, and then he ended up by, as he says, by going to the publisher and his book ending, anybody who wants to go and do a search of the asylum records uh, would probably be able to identify Jack the Ripper. And his publisher then turned to him and said, well, you go and search the <laughs> asylum records. And so that's what he had to do. And in a way, that, that's got all the Cohen-Kosminski kind of thing, um, which, in my view, uh, tended to confuse the whole issue for a, for a very long time. Uh, I was more interested in just setting out the, the, the facts of the case. Um, Jack the Ripper, to me, although it was a, uh, a subject that had always interested me, I was interested in historical mysteries overall and right. as as with Into Thin Air um, which I did in 79 um, I, that was just looking again looking at the facts I wasn't trying to be persuaded one way or the other and nobody had done that for the Ripper at that stage and so uh, that's what I sold the book on as just being a really, as Martin described it, a dry-as-dust account of who saw what, where, when, and why, and how, and whatever. I think he said dry-as-toast, actually. I think it was toast he compared your work to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, well, I, I always thought of it as toast with butter on. No, it was... There you dry, go. I, I, I really did think he said dry-as-dust, he may have said both. I remember the toast one, yeah. but not that any of us agree with that. I think it's an easy read. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, you know it was the irony being as a ripologist myself who came along much later, and I was buying these books as not new books, you know, they're older books, and I'm in, you know I see the uncensored facts, and I'm just like, oh man, this book's going to have all the goods, you know, it's going to be like real sensational and gory, and it was like the opposite of that. It was like. The, the most stayed, you know, and uh, book there uh, there was, and, and I know that and the uncensored wasn't your idea. That was the publisher's idea to put that in the title. I don't think it was Absolutely. a bad idea, yeah. but uh, I think it's uh, it's probably sold a lot of books, but at the time, you know. But it's so funny that yours is the only book of the centenary. It's the, it's the only one that came out in 1988 as a new book versus a reissue like of Rumbelows. Yeah, that is so yeah. weird. You know, because all the fuss in 1988, I remember it. Um, there was so much fuss, you would have thought that would have been a glut year of Ripper books. And there was exactly one new book that came out that whole year. It's so, so odd. Well, they'd, all they'd all come out at the end of 87, hadn't they? So, right. Martin and then in 89. Pete, yeah. Um, well, I remember my wife gave me hell for, for spending money because I stupidly ordered all these Jack the Ripper books that were coming out, Terence Sharkey and Peter Underwood and 
I mean, I think there were about seven, six, seven books came out. My wife uh, was Colin Wilson's not, Summing Up that's and right. That's right. My wife was not happy that I'd spent money on buying all these books. But, Paul, you were obviously very pleased with uh, your book. and with, I mean, you have to be pleased. It, it, it did, like you said, it, it, along with Fido's, change the course of ripperology. And then you guys teamed up for the A to Z, and then mm. a, few years, a few years later, Casebook happens, and and it's like you guys had created a bunch of ripperologists around the world, and then Ripperana, Rip followed by Casebook, gave them like a home. And and I to me that's that in that era right there from like eighty seven to ninety seven in that era there is the invention of modern ripperology. That's that's where I put it. Um, yes, I, I would, in all modesty, agree with that. I think it was. Um, I think it was quite. Looking back, it's it was an exciting time um, because suddenly, and I think this is probably one of the inner things inside of me is that is that uh, ripperology went from being uh, an amateur game. And took on all the trappings of a, of a professional scholarly field for study that, in many ways, was justified outside of who was Jack the Ripper because the Ripper played a part in newspaper history and lots of elements of social history and the history of the East End. There, there was a justification for looking at the Ripper as a piece of micro history. It upsets me a bit that we've we've now gone back a little bit uh, to the amateurish way of dealing with things, but uh, with a number of exceptions, of course. Well, I don't know that we've gone back. I think there's just, they're coexisting. I think, you know, well, you, yeah, yeah. you have your scholarly books and, and, you know, your ones with a little deeper research and then you've got your Bruce Robinsons and things like that um, that have always been there and, and seem to be the things that generate all the press and get the new people coming. Um, pretty much everyone in my generation, very few of us, I think, were brought in. Um, I mean, most of us were brought in by something like the diary or, you know, or or the in the 70s, you know, you know, all the people who got brought in by the, the sicker nonsense and all of that. It was. It was always something like that. I mean, Casebook.org was started because of the diary, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, that's why I never object really to to any any of these theories. Where I I tend to object now to areas of factual inaccuracy or where um, things are questioned without there being good reason for questioning them. We have the endless arguments going on at the moment over whether or not Catherine Eddowes was wearing an apron. Uh, we know she was wearing an apron. The, the, the information is all there. It's in the sources. And nobody at any time ever questioned it or cast doubt on it or something like that. So it, it, that that's an element of argument which I think um, I sort of uh, don't like too much. And I... Don't, and I as I reviewed in in uh, the current Ripperologist, the book that's just come out that suggests that um, Montague John Drew it loved sex with prostitutes and that it was his 
treatment of them, trying to throttle them and things like this that attracted the attention of the police. I mean, it, as I say, how wrong can you be? Right. Uh, and that that stuff irritates me because it's not perceived as being in any well it isn't in any way scholarly uh, and i i don't like that but well isn't I'm, it, I'm all for isn't, theorizing <laughs> isn't it actually impossible to arrive at the conclusion that montague john Jewett loved sex with prostitutes and it was his treatment of them that caused him to come to the attention. Isn't it impossible to derive that conclusion from reading anything? So how how has he managed it? Well, that's a very good question, (laughs) but I I don't feel inclined to go and ask him. (laughs) Who are we Uh, talking about? I I don't even know this theory. It's... um, Locked out the. I don't have the book on me at the moment, but it's. Uh, oh, it's just some piece of. Some piece of literature that has been uh, produced. It's it's in. It's reviewed in the. It's the uh, uh, the the radio oh, presenter, the British radio yeah. presenter's book. That's that. Yeah, that's the one. That's that's the book. It's. I mean, oh, is it in the new? Re- I haven't read the reviews yet. I will do that later today. Um, yeah, no. It's, it's, that's that's. Review starts off by by saying that the trouble with an ebook is that uh, you can't do any, you can't put it to a good use when uh, you reach out and the last piece of toilet paper comes away from the <laughs> That's hilarious. cardboard roll. It's uh, um, <clears throat> Alan Robson um, walking in the footsteps of Jack the Ripper. Yes, that's right. Is the, the <laughs> author and the, the book one. title. Yeah. Yeah, pretty. Uh, it's depressingly bad. Uh, I don't think he's read anything about Jack the Ripper. Well, on another, uh, Paul, I think you've seen early versions, haven't you, of Adam Wood's Swanson book. Uh, what do you think of it? <laughs> uh, what can I say? Actually, I... I haven't seen all of it. I've seen parts of it, um, and I think that it has all the uh, the makings of being an excellent read. The problem with writing these sort of books about the Victorian policemen at the time is that they tend to become just uh, a record, a sequential record of the cases that they investigated. Right. Because we we don't have an awful lot of information about them. Uh, Adam has been lucky with Swanson in that uh, quite a substantial amount of uh, Swanson material uh, remained in the family, and as they've been going through it, has come to light. So he's got some great photographs uh, and uh, things like address books and, and so on and so forth, from which uh, to some extent, some insight into the carry, not from an address book, obviously, but documents from which some sort of insight of, of Swanson, the man, can be drawn. But it would be enormously difficult to try and do that with other people, um, right. with other policemen. You'd have to really go through the case papers where they exist, and they, they don't really exist in abundance Uh to try and get some idea of the the thought processes. 
a policeman. You can't. It seems impossible to to write a biography unless it's of somebody like Warren. Um, in the same way of a police, write a biography of a policeman. In the same way that you can write a biography of a politician, the information just isn't there. The, nobody's kept the letters and stuff. And as time's gone by, uh, it remains to be seen how much is surviving in in family hands anymore. As Not much, get further, well, as we get further and further away from the policeman concerned i mean unless somebody happens to be interested in jack the ripper or they find that they know that there's a connection um i i i just don't know what's happened to all the stuff things like medals uh seem to, to crop up every now and again but well, virtually all of these policemen the, the senior ones at least were given something to commemorate their careers and so forth. And I just don't know what's happened to all of that stuff, presumably lying around in junk shops or just gone on the rubbish tip somewhere. There's a, you know, we know the photograph of, of Annie Chapman in life, and there's a photograph as yet unpublished of, Mar of Martha Tabram when she was alive. Um, have, have you seen that photo of Martha? No, I haven't. I haven't, and I, I've... You know, I, I wonder whether it exists, actually, or whether it just is one of those stories that goes around. I think That's I've what I thought, too, but uh, I think, uh, you know... What did like, you say, Mark? I think I've seen it. Really? Yes. Uh, it's. I've certainly seen a line drawing based on it, uh, a recent line drawing by someone who's... Uh, who's had the photograph in their possession, uh, and I think I have actually seen the photograph as well. Now, I, I'm pretty convinced that it exists. The family won't allow it to be, is what I've heard. That's my understanding, yeah. But I think it is a true story. It, it does exist. I, and, and, yeah, if my recollection is not good, but I think I have actually seen, well, not necessarily the, the copy of the, like a photocopy of the photograph or something. I think it's sad uh, that the family feel that way about it. I've, I've encountered this with other photographs of, uh, of other participants in the story, um, mostly admittedly minor. Uh, and I don't try to, to persuade people to, to release the photograph, but really it is their immortality. Uh, the, I know it's uh, a sad way, but there were countless women uh, in the East End going through the same problems that that the Ripper's victims went through. Um, and the irony, the horrible irony, is that but for Jack the Ripper, uh, the, the victims would now <clears throat> not be remembered any more than uh, any of the, the, the women who were alive then are remembered other than in just a name and a bureaucratic record well um, the, the thing with um, the Annie Chapman photo that the Sheldon's found is from what I understand they 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 only wanted um, Neil Sheldon to use it and he restricted access um as to how it could be used, because there was a concern over it being used in some exploitive way. 
And then immediately yes. afterwards, um, it appeared in the beginning, um, montage of the Alfred Molina Lodger remake, um, splattered in blood or used distastefully. Not only the photo of the, 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 um, of Annie and her husband, but also the, the photographs of her children. Mm, and so, okay. and so it's, it's kind of, uh, in the, the, this day and age, you know, if, if the family members are concerned over how it's presented, then, I mean, it's impossible to control. To control, yeah. yeah. It really is. It, it's, it's totally impossible. And, uh, you know, if somebody has a good copyright lawyer on their side, uh, even a family photograph like that can't be proven to be a, anything unless you have the negative and you can name the camera and the role of film and the make of the film. And it, it just gets totally silly. Uh, once you do surrender some information into the public domain, uh, that's it. You've, you've had it. So I do understand why people are reluctant, but to see the face of somebody, uh, is that's whether, however it is used is, um, it is still what is going to what that person lives from one, one year to the next and yeah. gets be remembered for and I think that's outweighs the other considerations although um, there is this big question of uh, of how people treat uh, um, the, the subject and and the degree of respect that people have for the materials and and how they're used and of course um uh, you hope that the uh, that the people who are are doing things will will treat treat it respectfully and 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 tastefully. And sadly, that's that's not always the case. I I for example, I didn't even want um, any of the ed, any part of the uncensored facts even back in in 1987 88 uh, i didn't want any part of the jacket of that book to be read i certainly didn't want knives and blood and goodness knows what else uh over the book jacket and i i've tried pretty much to to insist on that on any book that i've i've written uh, it's uh, <laughs> really just down to to that uh, that level, and you won't won't find any photographs of me clutching a knife or looking evil, or, other than you know the dinner table or just right. general, general. You look appeal. pretty evil when you eat. I know that. Yeah, everyone looks evil at the dinner table. It's just one of those. Yeah, yeah it's there. There are some dinner table pictures of me looking absolutely. <laughs> but there's this um. Uh, now that we have a proliferation of fake victim photographs, that leads to oh, what, what um, was said earlier about the one used in the H.H. H. Holmes um, eight-part documentary or whatever, how many other parts they needed, <clears throat> which is 
kind of interesting because it kind of goes back to what uh, was being said about um, all of you know um, these these folks who have the money throwing all of this money into research where and the question was raised well what would ripperologists do with that money well there seems to be this like it's almost like there's we're on two separate planets because the majority of of ripperologists i would say are interested in finding material that already exists lost uh lost or missing police files you know f you know uh, family possessions that are discovered in attics and those are the types of things that we um believe if found would move the case forward or give us additional information not hiring some scientific lab forensic laboratory to conduct Correct. tests on pieces of shawl uh, right. to use you know modern technology throwing money at you know um, modern day science to try to solve the case we're wanting the stuff that you know is hopefully free <laughs> lying in someone's attic somewhere you know just suddenly yeah, discovered I, I, so. I think the the good thing about the apron uh, sorry, the, the shawl, uh, in a, <laughs> is that it existed. It, it's been kicking around in, uh, in the Ripper world for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, I'd seen it several times and handled it, so I assume my DNA is all over it. Um, and it was... In, it, it did have the, this myth had grown up about it, or this the story, this legend had grown up about it being uh, the Amos Simpson story and so forth. So it was good in a way. Russell Edwards uh, was intrigued by it. He bought it. He had the means whereby he could uh, do the DNA test on it. I don't, as memory serves, I don't think he set out with a view to DNA. It was more that um, it was suggested that, that, that there was a technology that could test the, the item for DNA. Um, and he was in a position to be able to, to do that and, and did do it. I thought that was, I think that's pretty good. Obviously, um, there, there's a commercial element to it, and that's, the, that's where things start to go a bit wrong. Um, Right back in in uh, when the when the diary emerged, for example, uh, if that had gone to a university and a university had examined it and had subjected it to all the tests that were at the disposal of a university, then the whole thing, the whole story, uh, would have been completely different. Uh, from the way that it was, but at that time, you'd be hard pushed, I suspect, to find a university that would have been interested. And so it naturally went into the commercial domain, and once it was in the commercial domain, then there are people there who were uh, being inf would be influenced by by the, the the financial aspects, being literary agents, being a writer, being the publisher. Uh, 
they all had a vested interest. What is quite remarkable is that Shirley and Doreen Montgomery and Robert Smith were, um, were, were actually open to having tests done that could have destroyed the, the, the whole thing, blown it out of the water, and then they would have been left with nothing. Yeah, so that was, that's interesting, and I, I agree. And, I agree with you there. Yeah, and I think um, I think Russell had a a really hard time of it, uh, and uh, I I must admit that I was acutely embarrassed by the the attacks that he went through on uh, on Casebook. I I thought that was a very amateurish way about go, going about things. Uh, it was good at the end of the day that uh, the the DNA results were called into question. It's a pity that I would like to have seen uh, Russell and uh, Gary Luhalin, or however his name sadly is pronounced, which I lousy at doing. Um, it, it would have been nice if they they'd actually responded to that and put their hands up and say, yeah, we got it wrong, or no, we still think we're right for the following reasons, or maybe it's just the figures that were wrong. Well, he published a new edition of his book after he, that, too. He did indeed, and that's that's where um, I think that... Uh, it was a missed opportunity. I, yeah, it, it wasn't a satisfactory resolution to the, to the issues. But in fairness to Russell, I think that he... I don't think he was. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think. Look that, no, can, I, I agree. I don't think it's fair to use words like hoax. I mean, what, what, what the um, the the failure of the book is that the the single point of identification DNA identification doesn't appear to stand up. But um, oh. nobody makes DNA identifications from single points of reference anyway. You have to have multiple points of reference to begin with. I think that that's, that sort of book is not the place for, isn't always not perceived by people trying to set it. Uh, it's the sort of place where you can put that sort of detailed scientific information. So necessarily everything is kind of um, dumbed down a little bit because it's got to sell, it's got to jump off the shelves. Uh, yeah. Later on, we may know a lot more about the DNA and it may be, Maybe in you know more in favour of the thesis of the book than people think, but with mm. very very limited amount we know, uh, that has not been favourable to, to the um, to the project. I think that we need to know a lot more before uh, we can come to any definitive conclusions about it. Oh, absolutely, uh, but but you see that's where we're we're a little bit different from the majority. I think is that. Uh, we're not in, we, we don't have a uh, we're not we, we don't have a bias towards proving something one way or the other. No, uh, I, I think there, there's, I think it there's is. an intrinsic element inside both both you and myself and Keith and of and people that that we just uh, we just want to know the truth about something. We yeah. don't really have any uh, personal bias one way or the other. I think it's easy to jump to uh, jump to very sort of absolutist positions about these things, but I, I think in the end it would have been 
to my mind, it would have been desirable to address some of the issues which had arisen about DNA in that book, in that in the paperback edition. And when that didn't happen, that was I felt that like that was a missed opportunity, and that yes. perhaps that you know there was there was a kind of a duty on the authors at that point to address some of the criticisms they'd received. But um, but as I say, I think our knowledge of the complete, the, uh, you know, the science behind the identification is so limited at the moment. Until we know more, it's very difficult to come to a. Uh, I mean, you ha you have in uh, Dr. Lachlan and, and you know someone who is who is doing this work for a living, yeah, and not to my mind someone who is liable to um liable to sort of sacrifice his professional reputation for for what you know for 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 this for this folly. I, I mean, I, it's. It doesn't stand to reason that, that he's. To me, it doesn't stand to reason that there's something kind of uh, something worrying about it. I think that what we do need is is more information, and then that will enable us to come to a more reasoned judgment. Well, he made, like you said earlier, you know, he made a mistake, and and it was a new kind of uh, uh, process for him. Yeah. And for yeah. for him to come back and address it further would be just to draw attention to the fact he made a, a significant error. Because we're the only I, ones asking him to do so. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether the error was his or whether the error was not his. I, I, I'm not sure we have complete clarity even on that issue. So, um, we don't know very much at all. Really, we don't know, no, no, and I, I think it's too easy to, as you, as you said about the diary, it's very easy for these arguments to become uh, very quickly polarised. And well, I, I think the argument about the Shaw goes back before any DNA was done. I mean, because this one does yeah. go back a long ways. And, you know, I wrote an article for the 14 Times about the Shaw when his book yeah. was coming out. And I didn't talk about DNA. I talked about historically, yes. you can't yes. put that shawl around no, Catherine Eddowes' shoulders. That's, so. that's right. That's right. You can't You can't do that. And there, so, obviously, there's another thing to discuss there. Uh, I, I don't think... Russell Edwards' book necessarily takes us into takes us into the level of detail which we would need to form a much more reliable opinion about it. And um, but I agree with you. Even you know your work is still ahead of you, even if you get some DNA results out of that shawl. And just the shawl wasn't Edo's. So it's like you know you're not going to squeeze uh, blood from a lemon and get Edo's DNA and Kosminski's from that shawl. It just doesn't make sense that you would. <laughs> No, but then there's something. So what we know is there's something wrong about the backstory. There's that something about the backstory of that shawl doesn't doesn't work. But since we know that already, that kind of implies that maybe there is a backstory which we're not familiar with yet, which uh, would perhaps explain the DNA better. I mean, this oh, there is a backstory. Of, there's yeah, a kind there of circular is. reasoning going on there. I, uh, but but you know, I think we all know that Amos Simpson, the Amos Simpson story, isn't really a very effective one at explaining the provenance of the shawl. Unless um, he was Jack the Ripper. Unless he was Jack the Ripper. Mm. Um, which is your next book, Tom, is it? Right. No, of course. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that if the argument that <laughs> no, Amos I'm was so teasing, early on the scene that he was able to grab the shawl off of Edo's, he had to essentially have been Jack the Ripper. Um, which, of course, I don't believe for a second he was. And I don't think she ever owned this shawl while James Kelly was pawning his boots. She had this nice shawl around her shoulders. And, uh, of course, then Russell Edwards, his argument is it wasn't her shawl. It was Kosminski's. 
and he brought it to the scene with him, which is, I mean, them are getting really strange. Yeah, I mean, from from memory as well, there's there's the other bit about the Michaelmas Daisies, which I felt was uh, not a convincing uh, argument for the um, for the original ownership of the school of of the, of the shore. Um, so there's there's obviously there's a whole load of other stuff there apart from the DNA. What uh, my point about the DNA is that we know too little to be able to judge, um, but. Yeah, there, there's still a whole load of other hurdles to get over before uh, before the, the case is finalized. Yeah. Well, which, which doesn't stop the History Channel from <laughs> trying to tie the shawl, this uh, separate piece of the same shawl to H.H. To Holmes. Well, and that was the third time. Don't forget the first documentary, The Shawl, was in uh, predates Russell Edwards, and they were comparing it to Deeming. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> it got round that shawl. It sure did. Yeah, you got that right. And um, of course, I think the first time I'd read about it was forever ago in, in Andy and Sue Parlor's book. I think I may have read about it before then, but that's the first time I read anything serious about it. Their book about Gull a long, long time ago. Mm. Uh, and then I wrote about it in Bank Holiday Murders, having no idea this Russell Edwards stuff was going on behind mm. the scenes. Mm. I thought, oh, here's something interesting. I have this weird idea about the shawl. Mm. I'll publish an, an appendix, and most readers have never heard of the shawl, so this will be interesting to them. And then I announced on Casebook, like, oh, I'm writing a little something about the Edo shawl. Boom, I get a PM from, like, uh, Rob House or something. Uh, who I never hear from, you know, and uh, he's like, what's this about the shawl? What do you, you know, I was like, why are you interested in it? <laughs> well, cause he knew about, he wanted to know if, what I knew about it. And so, you know, as soon as I told him, oh, it's just this idea I have that it's not real, but if it did belong to any victim, it probably would have been Emma Smith. Um, just by virtue of the fact that she would have had to plug up her bloody injuries and her shawl could have ended up in the hands of police via the London hospital. And uh, so, and that was just an appendix, an afterthought I had that, uh, um, I don't know. And then next thing, like a few months later, the shawl is the big news in Ripper World. And I was like, who the, who saw this coming? Yeah. So, yeah. As, a, as a thought exercise, uh, I was, before I knew about the shawl, what was going on with the shawl, I was thinking to myself, uh, what Ripper artifact would be the least likely to provide any information germane to the case, uh, and uh, so I and I put the shawl at the bottom of the list, slightly behind Don Rumbelow's knife, because uh, I thought there's absolutely no hope at all of this shawl ever turning up anything useful. Um, and then a couple of months later, having having enjoyed my thought exercise and, and kind of thought no more about it afterwards. Uh, we're in shawl world. Right. Yeah, there, there is one artifact I would pay my own money to test. Unfortunately, I don't think the artifact survives any longer, and that is the uh, lust kidney. Um, if it, or, you know, or any portion of it remaining that could be DNA tested, if it should be found in the bowels of London Hospital, I would totally pay to have that tested to see if it was, in fact, Edo's kidney or not. That would be nice to know. I think they destroyed yeah. the kidney. Didn't Dan Norder try to um, track down the whereabouts of the kidney and and was told that, that it had been destroyed? 
Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think he was told uh, it was, you know, believed destroyed. I don't know that it was mm-hmm. confirmed. Like we have this piece of paper showing it was destroyed. I think it most certainly was destroyed. Um, just the same way stuff's pulled off the shelves of police stations and destroyed. Um, the same would be true for the hospital, especially with organs. Gross, you know? And, uh, and it would have been destroyed in the 60s. I imagine it was incinerated. So, um, so we're probably breathing atoms of it at the moment. And I don't think the From Hell, the from hell letter, nice which probably point. does survive um, in Australia or wherever, the, from, the real From Hell letter, um, I don't know that it ever came into contact with the kidney in order to get any of her or of the kidney's DNA on it. So I don't know. Even if that turned up in a collection, uh, I don't know that it would be viable for testing. So I think uh, it's a it's a fool's hope. But that would be the one artifact that I would spend my own money to test. Hmm. It's an interesting uh, question, though. I, I haven't really given a great deal of thought to it until now, but. It is interesting that what, what direction, what research would one champion if money was unlimited? Or I, I've put thought within that. reason. I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't think of a direction that one would go in with that. Well, I think it also depends on the amount of money we're talking about. If it was an infinite amount of money, I would hire a lot of researchers and. Based on their interests and abilities and skills, just have them focus on those areas, you know. Um, I would hire French researchers, uh, researchers of foreign languages to scour the archives of their newspapers, stuff that's not digitally available, um, to, to find stuff and then make it digitally available, uh, you know, um, uh, you know uh, what do you call it, uh, college, uh, people leave their stuff to colleges, what do you call that? Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. archives again, but not you know just just scour, just scour, scour, scour with no, and you know they have would have to be people who were knowledgeable about individuals or about the Ripper case in order for them to be affected. They have to know what they're looking for. I think that's the problem is you do have to put people on a path to say look for this. Um, You know, it's like when you have someone like Deborah Arif, who's not knowledgeable about the entire Ripper case, she can go on 20 different paths at once and be just fine. But if you're hiring someone from outside who knows the database but doesn't know what to look for, you have to almost train them. And I don't know how effective that would be. So really, we would just be hiring the Mark Rippers, the Deborah Arifs, the Keith Skinners, and those folks uh, and setting them loose and just saying, here's a bunch of money. Um, you, you know, quit your day jobs and <laughs> go research and tell me what you turn up. Yeah. Okay, well, well, I, I can tell you that, that the phrase, here's a bunch of money, would be a very good way to start that conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, wh- what do you think, guys? Should we be wrapping it up? Okay. Was, yeah, it was, it was an amazing episode. One of the best podcasts ever. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Hey, thank you, Ming Meister. And uh, thanks for dis- uh, discussing the and pretty much for the entire show, The Maybrick Diary. And we're going to have another show on The Maybrick Diary coming up um, with uh, some people who might have a little bit more expertise in the uh, ins and out of the uh, ink testing and things like that. So hopefully it will be a, a, a more in-depth uh, Maybrick Diary show on the horizon. It won't be as fun as this one, though. Not nearly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody.
Don't agree, but you don't.